Well, thank you all for that, uh, that presentation, that reminder of uh, lifting the cross and surrendering ourselves to the Lordship of Christ. Let me get set up here. I'm not worried about the cross, I'm worried about the roof holding the cross after, after last night. Make sure I'm not in the drop zone here. Well, if you have your Bibles, uh, turn with me once again to uh, John chapter 11. Uh, we're pretty much going to finish up the chapter this morning, and the next week I'm going to do a wrap-up before we kick off Fam Jam on Sunday, July 15th. And as we uh, kind of close things out this morning, I have some good news and bad news. And I'm always curious about other people and how they kind of respond to stuff. When you get that conversation uh, that you have good news and bad news, how many of you like to get your good news first? Any, any good news first people? See, a couple hands here. All right, how many of you are the bad news first people? All right, is that so that you can kind of have the good news and go out on an uptick? Is that how that goes? That's, I, I kinda, that's, that's where I come from. So I just, I'm always curious how people handle that. Uh, I'm not going to change the order of my message or anything this morning, but I'm just always curious as to how people shake out uh, on that. Last week, we started into this section of John 11, looking at five things that happen when Jesus prays. And we're using this word praise to talk about those five things. And through this chapter, we've talked about questions like, you know, what do we do when God is kind of quote unquote silent, when God doesn't move or work as we think he should, or we're disappointed with God? I mean, what does that mean in our faith journey uh, when God, from our perspective, lets us down or he disappoints us? He doesn't do something that we think he should do or should have done. And these verses in John 11 are critical for us when answering those questions. As we come to verses 38 through 44, a whole new world of understanding opens for us in our journey and our walk with God. Because you see, what we find out from this chapter is that even though we may be disappointed, even though God didn't do what maybe we thought he should do or we wanted him to do or we asked him to do, we come to this part and we see that God always has a plan. And God's plan is always greater than our own plan. And since we understand that, the question then becomes, how do we discover God's plan and then follow his plan? You see that? If God always has a plan and his plan is greater than our plan, then the key issue for us is discovering and finding out what is God's plan? And then how do we follow his plan? And last week, just to kind of catch you back up, I said that when God prays, God's plans are made clear. Jesus went to the tomb and the people followed him. When he got to the tomb, he said, roll the stone away. So like, okay, he's telling us what the next part of the plan is. We're to roll the stone away and then we'll see what happens next. You know, that's how we journey through life and through faith with God. We do what he calls us to do today and then tomorrow we see what the next thing is. It's step by step in our faith journey with God. Secondly, uh, when Jesus prays, he reveals hindrances to our faith. We've talked about the fact that Martha is wrestling with unbelief. She didn't believe there was anything else, that Jesus could do anything else about the fact that her brother Lazarus had died from an illness. Uh, and Jesus, as he prays and as he moves one step closer to revealing God's will, she finally fesses up and says, Lord, you know, he, he stinks by now. I don't think there's anything else you can do. Let's just leave this and move on. He drew out her unbelief so he could help overcome her unbelief. You know, that's an important lesson for us to know that as we journey and we walk with Christ, he will reveal hindrances and obstacles to our faith and our walk with him. He reveals those things so he can help us overcome those things and strengthen our faith in him. And finally, I noted last week that when Jesus prays, all the glory goes to God. 
The mourners were gathered around. Jesus lifted up his eyes and he prayed for the mourners uh, and he prayed that they would believe that God sent him and that they would receive God's message uh, through Jesus as a result. Well, here's some of the good news this morning as we come to the, to the letter Y in the word praise. You get to play a part in God's plan. That's exciting news, that we get to play a part. God invites us to be a part of his plan and his work in the world. That gets really exciting when you think about a couple of verses. Two, for example, Luke chapter 1, verse 37, where the angel Gabriel told Mary, for nothing will be impossible with God. Notice that it says, with God. Now, we would all obviously say nothing is impossible for God. He's God. He can do whatever he wants to do. But we know that we human beings, we have limitations. And when Gabriel came and told Mary that she was going to give birth to God's son, she kind of raised her hand and said, wait a second, that's going to be an issue because I'm still a virgin. And that's when the angel says, yeah, with man, with you, that's your human limitation. But with me, with God, nothing is impossible. Last week in Mark chapter 9, we met a father whose son had been demon-possessed, and Jesus came and was speaking with the father, and the father basically says to Jesus, if you can do anything, please have mercy on us and heal my demon-possessed son. And Jesus said, if you can, if you can, and then Jesus told him, all things are possible for one who believes. All things are possible. So thinking about those verses and the fact that we get to be a part of God's plan gives us the exciting truth that we get to be a part of the impossible things that God can do and that God does in this world. We get to be a part of the impossible as we walk and journey in obedience and faith with God. In John eleven thirty nine, Jesus told the people standing around the tomb, take away the stone. Now, you ever stop to think, why did Jesus have them do that? I mean, look, if you've got the power to raise somebody from the dead, why do you need people to roll back a stone? You've got that power. Can't you just say, stone be moved, and then go ahead with, about your business? Why did Jesus have the people roll the stone away? In verse 43, this is after Jesus prays. It says, when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice. The note and the tone of a loud voice here is a very strong, uh, bold command that Jesus makes. He says, Lazarus, come out. Uh, the Greek of that, Jesus didn't give any razzle-dazzle, no you know, flowery words or long speeches or incantations here. Jesus literally said, Lazarus, here, outside. Those three words, Lazarus here outside, uh, and then read on as to what happened when Jesus gave this very short, very pointed command. Verse 44, the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with the cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Now here's the question, why was Lazarus still in grave wrappings? You ever thought about that? If you look at John chapter 20 at Jesus' own resurrection, when the disciples got there, the wording and the language indicates that when Jesus was resurrected from the dead, his body passed through his grave clothes, leaving them in a pile on the shelf on which he had been laid. So Jesus kind of came through his grave clothes, but yet Lazarus, when Jesus calls him for us, he comes walking like the mummy. Ah, you know, he's got the linen strips wrapped all around him and the, the cloth over his face. And then when he comes outside, Jesus says, unbind him and let him go. Why 
why were his grave clothes not just left behind so that he could walk forth? Well, the truth here is, we're reminded of, because Jesus invites us and wants us to be a part of his plan. Let me ask you, what do you think happened in the lives of those people that got to roll that stone away and help unbind Lazarus from those grave clothes? I bet those people believed that Jesus was sent from God and they received the message that he came to deliver. And I bet because of being a part of this miracle, being eyewitness, firsthand uh, eyewitnesses to give an account of this, these people believed and I think their faith would have been unshakable when it came to thinking about God's power and what he was able to do. Now, we're tempted to think that everyone's faith would have been unshakable after they saw this miracle and what Jesus was able to do. But you know what? The Bible teaches something very, very different from that. People always criticized and doubted and tried to explain away the miraculous in Jesus' life and his ministry. Do you know they're still doing that today? People will say that the feeding of the 5,000. Well, Jesus didn't miraculously multiply anything. The feeding of the 5,000, the most important thing of that lesson that day was the fact that everybody shared their lunch with everybody else. That's how they try to rationalize and explain away the feeding of the 5,000. That everybody was so happy and in such a good mood, they shared their lunch with one another. That's the miracle of the day that people were generous and shared their lunch. Really? The Bible gives a whole different account and understanding of what happened that day. Remember the blind man in John chapter 9, that when he was healed of his eyesight, what did his, his friends and neighbors say? Well, this isn't the man who was born blind. It's just someone who looks like him. They couldn't believe that the man was healed, so they had to find an alternate explanation. No, it's just somebody that looks like him. The other blind guy is still running around here somewhere. And the guy's going, no, it's me. People tried to explain away and discount Jesus' resurrection, saying that he just passed out and then he came to later when they put him in the tomb or that the women and, and all the disciples, that they all went to the wrong tomb. You know, they went to an empty tomb and they said, oh, look, Jesus isn't here. And it started this whole myth and fable and legend that's been purported for all of these years. Now, those myths are all easily defeated, but the point is people always try to explain away the miraculous things that Jesus is able to do. And people would have probably tried the same tactics with Lazarus. But now you've got these persons who are there saying, no, 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 no. Listen, I was there. I saw it myself. I helped move the stone. I know it was the right tomb. I helped unbind the grave clothes. I know uh, that it was Lazarus, that he was dead. And it was him when we took those grave clothes off. Now, I've said this before, but it bears repeating today. Your greatest witnessing tool is your personal testimony. Your greatest witnessing tool is your personal testimony. People will argue and debate your theology all day long. But no one can refute your testimony of what Jesus Christ has done for you and is doing in your life. They may try to explain it away and say, well, that didn't really happen. It's just blah, blah, blah and all this. But they can't deny your experience, your journey, your walk of what God has done and is doing in your life. And when you respond and play a part in God's work, your faith and your trust in him grows. And as it grows, it's more difficult for your faith to be shaken when you face trials and times of testing. Now, here's part of the bad news that I have to share with you this morning, kind of connected to this. The fact that you get to play a part in God's plan also means you must do your part in accomplishing God's plan and his purposes for your life. Let's just imagine, theoretically, that you and God have a conversation that goes something along these lines. God, I want to be happy. 
I know it's hard for you to imagine that a saved again, born again believer would think of happiness as being the end goal of life. But let's just for kicks say that someone would say, God, I want to be happy. So God, I want you to make me happy. And just imagine that God indulges this and says, okay, let's do it. What's it going to take to make you happy? And we say, for example, no, this is just a crazy out there sort of thing. Say, you know what? A nice house, designer clothes, a luxury car, and good health would make me happy. God, those are the things that, that I would like for you to give me, and then I'll be happy. And then God responds back to you, kind of as he did to the rich young ruler, and says, you know what? That stuff's really not going to make you happy. Only knowing me and serving me is going to bring you ultimate fulfillment and contentment and joy. And joy is the close cousin of this happiness that you seek. So here's what I want you to do. If you really want to be fulfilled and content and experience this thing that you call happiness, sell everything you have and then go serve me in a third world country, meeting needs of people and sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Then you'll find fulfillment, contentment, and joy which you're calling happiness. That's not the way you would plan that conversation to end, would it? You kind of hear that and go, well, no, 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 no. I just wanted happiness. Not all this getting rid of stuff and, and, and following after and serving you. And here's the thing about this that I guess is kind of the, the bad news part of it. If you come to that point in your life where God calls and clearly sets before you steps of obedience and, and stepping out in faith that you need to follow... There is only one way that you will ever find what you're looking for. Happiness, joy, contentment, peace, fulfillment, whatever that is. There's only one way when you get to this point in your walk with God that you're going to find that. And it's by giving up your plan and following God's plans. That's the only way you're going to find it. And here's the kicker. If you don't follow God's plans you'll grow more and more unhappy and discontent and unfulfilled in everything until you submit to following God's will and God's ways and his plan. And you go, that's a bummer. That's a bummer. Here I am journeying through life, pretty content, pretty happy, trying to serve God, wanting to know more of him. And the more I know of him, then he calls me to this this big thing that I need to do. And he tries to radically transform my life. And if I don't step out in faith and obedience and do what he's called me to do, then I find that I'm miserable and unhappy and I continue to grow more and more discontent and unfulfilled and unhappy with things until I follow in obedience. And that's a bummer. That's a bummer that God calls us to this point, this, this place where we have to decide if we're going to follow him or not. But, you know, we need to do what we just saw a few moments ago. We basically have to kind of wave our white flag and say, okay, God, I give up. I surrender. I'm yours. I'll do what you want me to do. I'll follow your plans. That's the only way you're going to find that thing that you're looking for, that you long for in your life. And here's another application of this truth. Other people must choose to be a part of God's plan as well. Other people must choose to be a part of God's plan as well. Jesus said, and it was a general instruction, not not a word of instruction to a specific purpose. He said, take away the stone Then after Lazarus was resurrected, he said, unbind him and let him go. Well, as Jesus said this statement and gave this word of instruction, you know what happened? Somebody 
took a step of faith and obedience and boldness and stepped out and put their shoulder against this stone and was probably joined by a few individuals so they could roll this stone out of the way. When Jesus says, unbind him and let him go, somebody stepped out, probably plugged their nose because they all thought he was going to stink, you know, after four days. And they stepped up to begin unraveling and unwinding the grave clothes so that Lazarus could see and be set free from those remnants, those reminders of death. But you know what else happened when Jesus said, take away the stone and unbind him and let him go? Some people didn't step out. They didn't follow that word of instruction, that command that Jesus gave. And they didn't get to be a part of the miracle that Jesus did that day. Some responded in obedience. Others stood still and missed their opportunity to be a part of God's work. I don't know if you've ever read through the Gospels with these lenses and this frame of reference. But as you read through the Gospels, you will see that Jesus allowed people to walk away from him without believing in him. The rich young ruler is one example of that. Who came and talked to Jesus about following him. And Jesus told him to sell all he had and and to uh, come follow him. And he went away sad, the Bible says, because he was a man of great wealth. And the indication is he didn't go sell everything he had and follow after Jesus. But there are numerous other times where Jesus would preach and he would teach and he would even perform miracles and signs and wonders and people would refuse to believe and they would reject him. And Jesus never forced himself on anyone and he never will. You know, this part of this truth is hard for me because I know it's hard for you. I've been in ministry enough years to meet and to see people uh, and see the, the, the difficulties they have when they have children who don't walk with the Lord or when they have a spouse who doesn't know Christ or when they have parents who don't know the Lord. And I see this burden and I see this weight that these individuals have as they long and they wait for God to work in the heart of this person and bring them uh, to a relationship with God or to set their life back on a path of obedience to God. But you have got to understand this morning, if you're in that situation, but that person, that individual must respond to the work of God in their life. You cannot do that for them. It must be their decision to follow the ways and the plans of God for them. If God will not force obedience to his word and his will upon that individual, that person, then neither can you. You need to understand that and let that truth settle in your heart and your spirit and give that situation over to God. You know, in explaining all this and how it works, this is part of the mystery of God. There are a lot of things that we look at in Scripture that only work themselves out in the mind of God. And this is one of those things, that God is sovereign, God knows all things, He sees all things, God has a will, God has a plan. Yet at the same time, Scripture teaches that we choose whether or not to follow God. We participate with Him in our faith journey as we walk with Him, and we make choices or decisions to obey God or to reject and disobey God. We see this all throughout Scripture. God clearly sets this choice uh, before the Israelites as they're about to settle the promised land. Joshua gets them together. He's giving them their marching orders. And, okay, it's about time for you guys to go in, settle the land. And he says to them, choose this day whom you will serve. And he says, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. 
Which way is it going to be for you as you settle in the land? Are you going to follow God's ways or the ways of the pagans who are in the land? As God gave the the law through Moses in the book of Deuteronomy, he says, Today I have set before you life and good, death and evil. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live. When people followed the ways of God, blessings came in their lives. When they rejected the ways of God, discipline and rebuke and punishment came into their lives. Jesus called people to come and follow him. And some did, many did, but others refused. And they turned and they walked away. And Jesus gave them that choice. Now, that doesn't take away from God's sovereignty and that he knows all things. He even knows those who will reject him and when we will sin against him. But you see, the fact that we choose right and wrong is what makes us responsible for our sins. I mean, think about it. If we're just puppets and we're just, you know, walking through life, just following the script that God set without any choice and any opportunity to join God or to reject God, then ultimately one day we would stand before God and say, God, it's not my fault. I mean, I didn't have any say-so in the matter. I was just doing what you mapped out for me, walking through. So all the sins and all the shortcomings and, and all the things that I went through when I disobeyed you and I rejected you, that's your plan, not mine. I didn't have any say-so in it. I just did what you mapped out for me. But the Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible says we are responsible and held accountable for our sins. And the Bible says that God does not lead us into sin. He doesn't tempt us so that we're going to sin against him. That that's not how God works. So we are held accountable for our sins. So John 11 doesn't teach us that God is going to miraculously one day uh, bring someone uh, away from their sin and back into obedience to him. And then he's going to drag them kicking and screaming into a relationship with him against their will. They, like you, must recognize God's love and his plan. And they must respond in obedience to that plan and, and respond in faith to the call that Jesus has upon their lives. And here's the good news about this, is that even if you haven't had a good track record in the past, and you look back and say, man, the choice is against God and the choice is for God. Man, my choice is against God, way outnumber where I'm at. God gives us a second chance, a new day, a new opportunity to serve him more faithfully and more obediently in the future than we did in the past. And God can take bad situations, difficult situations we've been a part of. He can bring good out of them. I mean, I think about family members and individuals who who wind up in legal problems and and spend time in jail. I have a brother who spent eight years in prison. And I look at that and say, was that God's plan for my brother's life? I mean, God willed that he was going to wind up in jail and spend those years missing his children growing up and missing, you know, the relationship and the interaction and and have all of the things against him he's going to have for the rest of his life because he has a record. Was that God's will for my brother? No, it wasn't. Well, why was my brother in prison? Because of sin. It was because of sin. He violated God's laws, which led to him forsaking man's laws, and he was arrested and suffered the consequences of that. All because of sin. But you know, when that happens, what's the good in that? What can be the positive outcome for my brother? It was the fact that he realized that he needed to follow God's ways. He had broken God's word and God's laws, and he needed to follow those first and foremost and set his life in a new direction to seek after and bring honor to God instead of continue to disobey him. You know, Joseph, from the scripture, is another story of that. Joseph wound up in prison. Was that God's will, God's plan, God designed it that Joseph would wind up in prison? No. Well, what did Joseph do to get there? Did he commit a crime and he violated man's laws? No. Joseph did what was right. 
We say, well, then why was Joseph in prison? Joseph was in prison because of his brother's sins and their disobedience to God. And you go, wait a minute. You mean I'm going to have to suffer possibly because of the sins of other people? Yes. Welcome to the world after the fall. When sin entered into the world and it messed everything up. It tainted everything. We suffer not just because of our sins. We can suffer because of the sins of others. You read the headlines. You see what I do. You know that innocent children suffer at the hands of football coaches and teachers and parents and just random strangers in our world today to suffer vile and horrible things and even the loss of life. Why is it that innocent children suffer? It's because of sin. It's in our world everywhere. It's why innocent people die at the hands of murderous terrorists. It's why we deal with the emotional and the psychological distress and issues uh, associated with abortion and with rape and illicit sex and adultery. Sin warps and distorts and touches and taints everything in our lives. We're not immune to sin and its impacts upon us and those around us, whether it's because of us, yeah, this was my sin, I brought this on myself, or to say, I, 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 had this, I had nothing to do with this, and yet I'm still suffering. It happens because of sin. It's the world in which we live. But here's the issue. How did Joseph respond while he was in prison? How do we respond when we suffer even from the consequences and result of other people's sins? Our choice, our decision should be like Joseph's to honor God and do what God would have us to do, to do the right thing. And God blessed and, and God honored that. Joseph told his brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Well, what if Joseph hadn't responded positively to God? What if he'd rebelled and got angry and said, God, I'm not going to live a life of integrity. I'm not going to do the right thing. Look at what happened to me. I, I didn't do anything and now I'm suffering. What if Joseph had turned his back and walked away? A lot of things could have happened. We don't know because that wasn't what Joseph did. But here's one total valid possibility. We would maybe be reading in Scripture of how God raised someone else up to lead the Israelites out of Egypt. God's plan wouldn't have stopped just because Joseph uh, didn't cooperate and live a life of integrity before God. God would have found another way to accomplish his will, his plans, and his purposes. So the question for us is, are we going to join God in his work and his plan and accomplishing his purposes? Or are we going to allow someone else to walk in faith and obedience to God's will and God's command and accomplish God's will and God's purposes that he intended and desired for us to be a part of. Here's another part of this truth. Unless the change that happens in a person's life is for God, that change won't be permanent. Unless the change that's brought about in a person's life is for God and comes from the move and the work of God in their life, then it's not going to be permanent. You know, here's another issue ripped from the, uh, the headlines of our newspapers and all the media that we watch and that we see and hear. You know, it's very likely that every single one of us at this point in this juncture in our, our nation's history uh, and, and with the things that are taking place have an individual, a family member, a co-worker, a loved one uh, who is dealing with the issue and the sin of homosexuality. I mean, it's touching more and more people day after day as this grows in our society and our laws change and, and are challenged in so many different fronts. 
and we struggle and we deal with this. And here's my question. If a family member, someone that you know and love, if they, knowing your position and where you stand and what you feel about this issue, they don't talk about it. They hide it. They don't want to bring you stress or distress, but they continue on in this lifestyle with this secret sin. Are they still guilty and held responsible for that sin before God? They are. Whether it's private or public, that impacts their relationship and their standing before God. They will have to give account of that sin just like we all have to give an account of our sins to God, whether they're private or public sins. And I'm not singling out this, this issue only. I'm just mentioning it because it's something that we are increasingly dealing with as a society. And I feel like many believers have this idea, this mentality, that if people would just stop talking about it, just being so open and accepting of it, that it would just go away. That it just wouldn't be here if we just wouldn't acknowledge it. Well, first, it won't. You know why? Because we live in a sin-tainted world. It's a byproduct of the fall. It's been here all the way back in the book of Genesis. We see references to it, and it's going to continue until Jesus returns and makes all things right. We have dealt with it. We're going to continue. And the fact that just because we don't see it doesn't mean it's not there. It's going to be there. And here's the thing. If we love and care for a person, our desire shouldn't be that they wouldn't talk about it and let us know that they're struggling with the sin issue. It would be that their heart is transformed by the gospel. There's a radical change that God brings about in their life to forsake their sin and follow in obedience to Christ. That should be our greatest desire for anyone. Because unless the change comes from God and is made for God, it's not going to be permanent. And they can hide it for our benefit, but they're still going to give account of that sin before God. So the answer isn't legislation or winning people over to our view of morality. It's about a transformation of the heart that comes through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ as we respond in faith and obedience to the gospel. That's the answer. Jesus is the answer that they need. He's what they need, not a change in our, our culture and our society and our laws. I'm not saying we don't do those things. I'm saying we need to get the right things in order. And I really don't have time for this, but I'm going to say it anyway. Church, you need to be thinking about your reactions to sin. Both in the world, in the community, out in public, but even among our very own members. We miss many opportunities to love and minister and care for people because we talk in condescending, judgmental ways about issues and situations and struggles that people are going through that we have no idea that they're dealing with. And when you berate and belittle people and you snarl and you speak of the evil and horrific sins that other people are committing, don't think for a second that you're going to say all these horrible, awful, terrible things and judge and, and look down your pious nose with your pharisaical attitude about how awful and terrible these sins are while denying your own sins and then look at somebody and say, hey, how can we pray for you and your family? Don't think for a second they're going to say, you know what? That stuff that you just so uh, horribly talked about and how awful those people are, we're dealing with that. That's a struggle that's going on in our family. Will you guys come and love and minister to us and, and help us through this situation? They're not going to say that. They're going to say, you know what? We're fine. We're good. Nothing going on here with us. Because they know what you think. 
They know what you've said, and you just cut yourself off from a mission and a ministry opportunity to love and care for people who need you. They need you to rally around them and show them love and support and encouragement, not judge them and their family members so that they feel like they're alone and isolated. And their brothers and sisters in Christ, for Pete's sake, won't help them out and encourage them and love them when they're hurting and they're struggling. Church, that's on us. That is on us. Look, people will sin. There's no doubt about it. We're all going to sin. We've established that. And we don't gloss over and say, oh, sin's fine. Just, just go on and do it. We don't say that. We stand for truth. The Bible t- calls us to stand for truth. But let me ask you this. Did Jesus Christ stand for truth? Absolutely. He stood for truth. Did people avoid Jesus because he stood for truth? No, they didn't. They flocked to him. That they couldn't, you know, they wouldn't stay away from him. The disciples tried to get people to leave him alone, and people wouldn't. They wanted to be around Jesus. So he stood for truth, and yet people flocked to him. Look, stand for truth, but don't be a jerk or a jerkette, whatever the case may be. Here's your quote for the day Jesus wasn't a jerk, so you don't be a jerk either. All right? It's a shame that we miss opportunities to love and care for people. As I think about John 11, they're standing there at this tomb, and they've got this person they love in this situation, and they want God's power to work, and they feel like there's, there's hopeless. There's nothing else they can do. They're powerless to make a change, and they need us to be there with them. They need us to help roll the stone away so that Jesus can do what only he can do, or as they begin to experience new life, they need us to come alongside and help unwrap the grave clothes and let people go and, and help them find freedom and a new life in Christ and set their life on a new path but we can't come alongside them they're afraid to let us know because of our attitudes and our spirits that are ungodly they're not christ-like what a horrible indictment is it upon us when people say this i like jesus but i can't stand his followers what an indictment upon us i like jesus but i can't stand his followers The last thing happens when Jesus prays and we respond to the work of God in our life is that spiritual warfare increases. Spiritual warfare increases. I wish this weren't so, but it is. Because of Lazarus' resurrection, many people believed in Jesus. But not everyone did. Look at verse 46 of John 11. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. The gift of tattletaling. Isn't that awesome? They went to tattletale to rat out what Jesus had done in raising Lazarus from the dead. Why do people love to tattle about other people? We love to tell the sins and what other people have done wrong, don't we, to get somebody else in trouble. It is innate within us. It's part of our sin nature. And I love that my wife and so many women have this beacon, this, this sensor, this filter to know when a tattle is about to happen. I'll be at home and my kids will walk and they'll come running in the kitchen and go, Mom, and Shelly will say, I don't want to hear a tattle. I'm like, they just said mom. You know, that, that's a, how do you know it's a tattle? And I know she's right because she'll say, I don't want to hear a tattle. And they go, hmm. 
And they turn, I'm like, how did you do that? What, is there like a smell that comes in with them when they're going to tattle? How do you know this, this tattle thing going on? But we love to tattle on people. It's part of our sin nature. It started back in the Garden of Eden, didn't it? God said, Adam, where are you? What's going on? Adam says, the woman did it. The woman you gave me, it's her fault. She made me do this. We love to tattle on people. And that's what some of the people did. They didn't receive Jesus' miracle. They went and told the Pharisees, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. What are they going to do about it? Well, look at what they try to do about it. Verse 47. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Look at verse 53. Here's their plan. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Get that. Jesus performed a miracle, raising a man from the dead. And as a result, the religious leaders put a bounty on his head, wanted to kill him because he raised a man from the dead. But it gets better. Not only did they set out to kill Jesus because of what he did, look at John chapter 12, verse 9. I love this. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Are you kidding me? The dude just died, was dead for four days, gets resurrected from the dead, and now they're trying to kill him again. Can you even kill a guy that's already been killed one time? I mean, is that even a possibility? But I mean, do you see how hard and callous the human heart can grow? They're like, well, people are falling because of the guy that was, let's, let's kill them both. Yeah, that's a great strategy. But look at the, the evil and how callous and hard the human hearts can be. And, you know, this increased opposition would lead Jesus. You know, this, there's increased spiritual opposition. It led to Jesus being arrested and beaten and tortured and ultimately crucified and killed. But through it all, Jesus walked in obedience to God's will. And the end result was what? Jesus was resurrected. He resurrected himself from the dead and God was ultimately glorified. You see, spiritual opposition increases as we walk with God. But here's the good news. God gives us the strength to endure, and as a result, he accomplishes greater works, and he receives more glory because of it. He walks with us, he accomplishes greater things, and he receives more glory for what he's done. For our time of response this morning, I boil this down to three things. Let's start with the most pertinent issue, which is this. Are you working with God in his plan for your life? Are you working, walking with God in his plan for your life? Are you living in obedience to his will? Are there hindrances, obstacles? Is there sin in your life that's keeping you from living in full obedience to God? If so, 1 John 1 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And I invite you this morning to, to identify it, to name it, confess whatever it is that's keeping you from walking and working with God to accomplish his will in your life. Secondly, I, I say this, is there a person or situation that you need to give over to God? You've been trying to work it out. You've been trying to manipulate it, control it, and say, God, let's work this out in this way. Today, you need to come and give it to God and say, God, it, it's yours. I can't do it. I know I can't do it, 
But Lord, I'm going to trust you with it. Lord, where only your power can work, I give the situation to you so that God's peace, his strength, his presence can be experienced in your life. And you step back and give God room to work. Sometimes we're the thing that gets in God's way. I love the fact that my kids want to be with me and want to help me do stuff. But there are sometimes in some projects where I'm like, you guys just go so I can get this done. I appreciate your desire, but you're more in the way and I'm never going to get it finished if you don't back up and give me some room to get this taken care of. And God calls us in that way to, to give situations to him and then allow him to work. And finally, very simply, I ask you this morning to say to God, God, what is my next step? What are next steps for me? Jesus said, take away the stone. So they rolled away the stone. Now what? Ask God, God, what is it for me today? What's my next step of faith and obedience? And you may take that step today of surrendering to a call or confessing something or seeking you know, wisdom and input. The next step for you may be a month away. It may be a year away. But what's God calling you to do today? And ask him to give you the boldness and the courage to take that step today. As this cross hangs over my head that we saw earlier, We're reminded of the words of that. We lift the cross. We lift it high. We raise our white flag and we surrender all to you. I invite you and ask you today, would you surrender your all to God's will, to God's work, his plan in your life? He's inviting you to join him to see the impossible take place. Will you surrender your all to experience his limitless power? Let's pray.